This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, joining me later on this hour is going to be Danny Bowes, a singer for Thunder. But before we get there, we have got the one, the only Robert Berry, of course, uh, having played with everybody over the years, including Alliance and, and Keith Emerson and everybody else. Uh, Robert, first of all, thank you for for having hooked me up with, an, with a Gary Peel interview. But uh, bonjour, as we say in Montreal. Hey, Mitch, it's great to talk to you. I want to tell you, though, I never got to play with Donnie and Marie Osmond, so I didn't play with everybody. <laughs> well, maybe, so you know. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps. Maybe someday, but uh, of course... Maybe. Uh, you never know. You never know. In, uh, in 2018, you uh, released The Rules Have Changed, and uh, it, it was sort of the same kind of concept behind the band three, but... It is 3.2, and you had um, Keith Emerson uh, on there, yeah. you, or you, 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 you took that relationship and worked these songs that you and him had sort of sussed out before. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that, and then uh, the other thing is, you're going to bring this on the road. You are coming to Montreal on October 3rd at the Piranha Bar, and on October 4th, and I'm going to have to read this one off the screen because it is a long name, La Source de la Martinière in Quebec City, and then, of course, you go on to New Hampshire and uh, Pennsylvania and New York, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. We're doing 29 cities, so I'm, I'm energized and ready, you know. So, so talk to me about this. The rules have changed. It came out on uh, Frontiers, and yes, it's a great record, man. It's a, it's a year now, but it, uh, talk to me just about revisiting those songs and that relationship with em uh, Keith Emerson and, and putting these songs yeah. together. You know, it's interesting that it's still alive and well, and I'm doing lots of interviews. Lots of people are coming to the shows you've done so far. They are all energized by what we called, you know, Keith and I called it 3.2, which was the second version of 3. Back in 88, we had uh, a tour. We came to Canada. Uh, the band was called 3. We had a top 10 song. It was really great, but Keith got so much criticism from the ELP, the diehard ELP fans. Yeah, hey, where's Great Lake? How come you're playing these songs like Asia and stuff? You should be blah, blah, blah. So Keith took that to heart. He was very, um, criticism hurt him. He couldn't take it. So he, he broke up three. 27 years later, they put out a live three in Boston album. And Keith, we all three of us signed off. Yeah, but for Keith, it was just money in the bank. Kind of. But it showed up at his doorstep. He played it and he immediately called me. He goes, Robert, I just had no idea we were such a good band. I said, well, I always thought so. He goes, no, we're... We were fiery. We were jamming with the energy and everything. It was so good. And I thought, well, there's my chance. Keith, what would you think about doing another one? And we said, maybe, if anybody's interested. Well, Frontiers have been bugging me for years, 10 years, to do this album with Keith and Carl, if you do it. So I called Frontiers. They okayed it. Got good money. Got a complete artistic control. We started in. And a couple months later, uh, Keith was gone. He died. And... Uh, I'm left with the five songs we had written and some more, a bunch of ideas, outline forms, and about 20% of his keyboard parts, but a broken heart at the same time where I just thought, I can't finish this. I can't go on with this. It was a dream of mine for 27 years and boom, gone, you know. So six months later, to make a long story short, if I can, I thought, wonder if his son Aaron would do it with me. I sent Aaron one of the really hard songs, one by one, one of my favorites on the album, has this fantastic Keith Emerson intro, and Aaron called me back and goes, whoa, whoa, I can't play like that. That's my dad. And, of course, 
nobody could play like Keith Emerson. He was amazing. He was the very best of the best. So it, I revisited the material, and I decided I'm going to finish the rest of it on my own. I was the only guy that knew the sound, knew the plan, had played in the band, rehearsed the, the first album, developed everything. And I wanted it to be exactly what we wanted it to be, the second three album, therefore 3.2. When it came out, sold out in five countries by noon the first day, and it's been rolling ever since the whole year, where a manager got a hold of me and said, you got to put this on the road. Right away, booked 29 cities. And I'm so excited we're coming to Canada. That, that was important to me because the Canadian dates that three did were some of the best dates and some of the best audiences. I do believe that Canada supports their musicians more than the U.S. does. We're sort of flavor of the month around here, you know. And doesn't Canada also have something in the laws of the land where 30% of the radio and stuff has to play Canadian artists or something 70. like that, Mitch? 70. 70. Oh, there you see? And so they cherish their artists and they support them. We don't do that here. You know, we yeah. say, well, you know, if, if you can't uh, do it on your own, that's sorry. Okay, thanks. We we call that uh, CanCon, which is short for Canadian Content Rules, and uh, the CRTC, which is our equivalent of your FCC, says yeah. in order to get uh, preferential treatment on the radio, on television, they have a four-star uh, rating, and uh, people might correct me on this, but if you wrote the song, sang the song, et cetera, et cetera, you get a point. And if you get three out of the four stars, like let's say you and I wrote a song, well, I'll get a you know I'll get a star, and you'll get a star because you wrote you wrote with me, and then eventually seventy okay. percent of the music has to has to be played. And, and listen, you look at bands like Triumph and Honeymoon Suite and Brian Adams and Celine yeah. Dion. Had it not been for those Canadian content rules, we might not be thinking about Brian Adams these days. We might not be thinking about Lawrence Gowan, who's now with Sticks. We might. So it's helpful, but yeah, I love it. You know, it's it's one you of know those. What else, yeah. what else that does is, you know, you start at a certain level, and when you get on the professional stage, or you start developing your songwriting, and you start to see what people think of you and what they like of what you do, what they don't like, it develops you into a better artist. I, like Smash Mouth is from my hometown here. When they first started live, you didn't, you would not want to listen to them, but they had a big hit. So they got to play in all these concert tours. A couple years later, wow, these guys are smoking hot. They are so good it, because they got the opportunity. In Canada, the government or the, you know your your radio policy there helps you get those opportunities. I'm moving. That's it. I'm I'm done. I'm you, packing you up my move. studio. Now the, I'm moving. I gotta gonna, say, we'll write that song together. <laughs> yeah, we will. And what I gotta say, uh, the greatest irony to all of that is that years ago. Uh, Brian Adams wrote a, a song. I think it was All for Love. Anyway, but it was like co-written yeah. by Rod Stewart and he recorded it in London and he ended up getting one star out of four. And so that song <laughs> was not considered Canadian content. And people just went, yeah, yeah, but but he's Brian Adams from Canada. And they went, and, and the and, and the CanCons went, no, it doesn't qualify. So that that was that was kind of ironic and kind of funny. Um, but uh, let's remind the folks here real quick. You are October third at the Piranha Bar in Montreal. October fourth at La Source de la Martiniere, and then October fifth you're heading off into uh, New Hampshire at the Lafaro Center of the Performing Arts. So quickly, when fans come out, do we see just sort of the entire album performed from top to bottom? Are you doing some of the earlier stuff to the Power of Three? Is there some alliance? Is there you know, some hushes. Is, is it sort of yeah. everything? How, what what can fans expect? 
you're seeing my history of 30 years playing with some of the most iconic musicians in the progressive rock and English kind of progressive rock world. I started with Steve Allen GTR. We're playing a GTR tune that I wrote with Steve. I went on to Keith Harrison, Carl Palmer. We're playing three songs off the three albums. Desi LaVita being one of them. A huge ELP fan and three fan favorite. I was in Ambrosia. Uh, two of Ambrosia a couple of years. We're playing a song that I did with them. Um, I had, excuse me, I had Pilgrimage to a Point Out, a lot of songs that I had written to try to get three revitalized and Last Right Into the Sun was a favorite off that. We're doing that. I worked for a record label called Magna Carta doing this whole tribute series to the great bands like ELP and Yes and Genesis. We're doing four of those songs um, that are re-envisioned versions. They're kind of tougher and have a deeper groove. Roundabout, I did on the Yes one, and Steve Howe played on it with me. I have a letter from him saying how much he likes the bass line. I said, really, Steve? The bass line that Chris did was Roundabout, right? He goes, oh, this new one kicks it all about. I said, wow. And I have a letter from Ian Anderson from, uh, I did Mr. in the Gallery. He goes, my favorite on the album. So these songs that no one's heard live, I'm doing the whole history. Then we're doing 3.2, a couple songs from that. And I'm so excited about it. We've done a quarter of the tour already. The audiences have been great. And what really thrills me is people are coming up and thanking me. And they're not just enjoying the show. We're saying, hey, we just didn't think we'd ever hear this live. And with Keith gone, and I mean, so many of our favorite uh, musicians are gone, you know. Um, we really we thank you for coming out and doing this. So I'm actually doing it to thank the fans. I've made a living in music my whole life, and uh, who could be luckier than me, you know? That's really something. And I've been able to do it the way I want to. So that's pretty cool. It, it, it's exceptionally cool. And of course, fans, you can check out all the dates on uh, robertberry.com. That's robertberry.com. And uh, sir, as we say in uh, Montreal and uh, in Quebec City, too, actually, uh, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. I can't wait to meet you in person. I'm dying to get back to Canada. Closest I've been in the last 20 years was Niagara Falls, but the American side, U.S. side. Well, um, you got to come well, to the actually, Canadian side. I produced a band called, I think they go by Diva. I call them Diva. It's a string quartet that does things with the guitar amps and stuff. They're rocking. They're Canadian. I went up there to work out of Russia's uh, one of the places they get something in. And so I have been there for that. But just to go uh, for three played before, it's going to be a thrill for me. I tell you. Thank you for your time and your support over the years, too. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, folks, uh, coming right up, it is... Danny Bowes of Thunder. We are speaking with a singer at Danny Bowes of the band Thunder. Their new greatest hit celebrating 30 years is out now. Uh, as we say in Montreal, Danny, bonjour. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you, sir? Good, good. Always a pleasure to uh, to talk to you. And uh, I'm sure you might have seen or you might know, you are in 2019 by far my favorite singer. Uh, easily. Oh, yes. Very kind of you. Very kind of you, sir. Yes, um, and I've mentioned this in the past. I, I'm, you know, my playlist in the phone is over 400 songs of thunder, 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 and it doesn't matter if it's a good day or a bad day. Uh, listening to you guys happens to put a smile on my face. So let us quickly talk about this 30th anniversary package, uh, and I want to talk particularly about your voice because when you go back and you hear the stuff from the early days, from Backstreet Symphony, from Laughing on Judgment Day, all the way up to uh, Wonder Days and Rip It Up, you can sense that your voice has matured. Is that something that you sense also that, have you noticed that your singing or that your technique has 
change? Is it was it conscious? Was it just time and experience? Talk to me a little bit about the voice and and that new sort of mature sound that you have. I'll be honest with you. I don't really think I've paid too much attention to it over the years. I think it has a tendency to kind of work itself out. I'm very fortunate that I don't really have to try very hard. It kind of, I just kind of open up my neck and it comes out. But certainly as the years have gone by, I've been aware of some physical changes uh, to my voice. Um, certainly in the lower register, it seems to have become slightly richer. Um, and in the higher register, um, there I'm probably missing a note at the top. Uh, that, so there are some songs, especially on the first and the second albums, which um, I would have to adapt if I was going to try and sing those songs. Um, but apart from that, you know, it still feels like it works pretty well. And um, I don't really, like I say, I don't really put too much effort into it, and I certainly don't worry about it very much. Well, you know, there's nothing to worry about. It sounds sounds perfect to me, but sort of where did you get your voice from in the sense that was it, you know, you had your grandmother saying, hey, go sing for the neighbors. Where was that moment where you sort of said, okay, I'm not the drummer, I'm the singer. Where, where did you first have that moment, that epiphany, you went, hey, I sound pretty good. Yeah, it's a weird one, you know, I mean... I got into music quite late. My parents didn't have any money. We didn't even have a, a radio. Um, and it was only really when I got into high school that I became aware of music because the other guys in school were discussing albums and swapping albums and you know recording each other's albums and just kind of making making a big deal about certain bands and artists. And I felt like I was missing out. Um, and so eventually I kind of got into music, and uh, which is a fairly long story, but I, so I won't bore you with that one. But um, once I got into it, I, I became very, um, very, very smitten. I was very taken by music. It, was, it, was, it became very important to me very quickly. Um, and it was only really when I was in school uh, one afternoon. This is an absolutely solid true story i went to luke's house one day he lived very close to our school and i went to his house and because i didn't smoke i was put into his bedroom while the others all sat in the living room and they smoked themselves to death and in the in the bedroom was a drum kit it was only a cheap drum kit but it was the most miraculous thing i'd ever seen it was almost like there were sparks coming out of it all the chrome um, it was a very sparkly red drum kit, and it just kind of blew my mind. I spent the rest of the afternoon completely transfixed. I mean, uh, the whole of the afternoon of school just bounced off me, and I really didn't have anything else in my mind except this drum kit. I was completely blown away by it, and I felt like I needed to be near one. I knew I couldn't play one. I didn't have any money. I was poor as a church mouse. But... Um, so in the end, I reasoned that because I couldn't play an instrument, I didn't have any money to buy one, and I had no time to learn, I decided I had to be a singer. So that was the only way I, I reasoned that I could be near it. And um, the next day, I sat next to Luke in class, and um, during a moment when the teacher was quiet or mumbling away at the, at the blackboard, I, uh, I told him I was a singer, and then he told me to, um, in, in the kindest way possible, he told me that I should maybe... Uh, go away. I think that's the kindest way I can put it. 
And he um, eventually I told him out of sheer desperation that I had a microphone. And I think because we were all poor and and equipment was at a premium, he took me very seriously when I said I had a microphone and he gave me an audition. And the following Sunday, um, having taken all the records that he gave me and learned them, I went back to his place on the Sunday and I did an audition which lasted all afternoon and I basically shouted my head off into a tiny little combo using my uncle's microphone that I'd borrowed from him because he had been in a band years before. And um, in the end, they made me go away and make the tea while they discussed me and uh, and they gave me the gig. And I honestly, to this day, don't know why, because I thought I sounded absolutely god awful. I will uh, respectfully disagree. I think you sound uh, brilliant. Um, Back when I was 15, trust me, it was a different story. Yeah, well, okay, and, and well, I'll talk about Terraplane in a second because I have a question about that. But but let me ask you just real quick: this greatest hits celebrates thirty years. When you got to the twenty year mark, you had sort of said, "Okay, we're done." You did the farewell. You did all this. Talk to me about the last ten years. How has that been for the band? I mean, Wonder Days, Rip It Up, Please Remain Seated, all top ten status in the UK charts. How do you sort of look back on these last 10 years? Is this sort of the cherry on top or is it, no, man, this this is some of the, because to me, if you look at Wonder Days, I will put it up there as your top two albums. It's just brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think if you if you look at the 10 years, I think you can only really look at five because the first five of those 10 years, we did nothing. Occasional show, but no no commitment to making records. I mean, we had broken up. I mean, that was that was absolutely it. The other guys in the band were doing different things. They all continued to play. Um, I got into managing other bands. I was booking bands. I became a booking agent. I did all kinds of other things and didn't sing. Um, it was really only in 2014 when we got back together and decided that we would make the Wonder Days album that it kind of comes back to life. And I think when we decided we were going to make that record, we agonized long and hard. I think we discussed it for at least three or four months before we actually did anything before Luke even wrote a note or a word, you know, I mean, it was at least three or four months of discussion and the discussion all centered around the debate as to whether or not we were going to come back and give it a really proper go or whether we were just kind of, going to dabble and make a record and then go away again. We needed to know whether or not we all were deadly serious about the idea of doing it and making a full commitment to it. And um, thankfully, we all agreed that we would. But we also agreed at the same time that we wouldn't just make any old record. Part of the conversation revolved around the fact that we recognized that we had more years behind us than we probably did have in front. So if we... So the argument was, if we're going to make a record, we need to make sure it's the best record we can make because it might be the last one. You know, we're all completely reliant on each other, um, but none of us are getting any younger. So, you know, if something bad happened to any one of us, you know, that may or may not end us, you know, as a band. So I think that was that was the sort of the crux of it. And I think we're very mindful of that ever since. So, you know, the Rip It Up album, once again, you know, we raised the bar. Would please remain seated. That was a different kind of bar, but raised in a different kind of way, you know. Um, and I think that we've we've just we've just made it very hard for ourselves deliberately to make sure that if we 
push it really hard and we keep raising the bar, then hopefully the records will just get better as a result. And we're incredibly proud of, of the last you know five years. It's been it's been an amazing um, experience to be releasing these records and and to have this kind of outpouring of love from fans around the world. It's been quite incredible. I can imagine. All right. So since you man, you mentioned, please remain seated. Uh, first of all, I will be a fanboy and say that the version of Loser on that is absolutely brilliant. Thank but, you. but let me talk to you about that album and, and put it in the context of the last 30 years and the greatest hits and how the music industry has changed. After Backstreet Symphony and Laughing on Judgment Day, had you come to the record company and said, we're going to do this album where it's going to be completely offbeat and, and we're going to have you know low life and high places with this incredible sort of Monty Python-esque chorus and they would have laughed you out of the room and they would have said, get, get the f out of here. Um, now you have this freedom to, to make albums like that. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how the music industry has changed and how you're coping with it in the sense that, yes, we don't sell as many records and yes, we will. But on the other hand, you have this incredible ability to be as creative as you want and essentially make an album like Please Remain Seated, which I would argue no record company back then would have, would you, would have allowed you to put out. No, I think I think you're probably right. I think back in um, in the early '90s, um, you know, record companies had an expectation to sell a to sell a, a lot of copies, and um, and you could, you know, the music business was very different then. The internet hadn't happened, and um, and people and it wasn't as much competition for people's money like there is now, you know. Um, but then if you fast forward um, to see, you know, 25, 30 years to where we are now. Um, yes, we do sell less records, but but yes, also we have we've kind of earned our stripes really because we've been around long enough. You know, we know what to do to please ourselves, and we are pretty confident that if we please ourselves, that we'll be going a fair way to pleasing the majority of our audience. So, I think something like "Please Remain Seated" is. I don't think he's particularly brave. I think a lot of people have done it over the years. We just felt like it was the right time for us to do it. Certainly, I mean, even if the record company had countenanced the idea of making Please Remain Seated, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I don't think we were, we were good enough. You know, we were, as, as a bunch of individuals, um, as good as we could be then. But, you know, you can't fail to make as many records as we've made and not get better, you know, especially if you test yourself and you think about it you, you know, you want to make the best record you can, you know, you, if you're consciously doing that, you know, and you raise the bar each time, which we've done over the last three albums, um, very consciously, I think you're going to end up with better records as a result and you're going to be better players and better singers as a result. And um, like I said, 30 years ago, I don't think we were capable of making a Please Remain Seating type album. Possibly. So, so let me ask you about there. You said the individuals you've gotten better and so on and so forth. Uh, let me go back to... Terraplane for a second. You're there, Luke's there, uh, Harry's there. The only thing that's missing is Ben and and I guess at the time Snake. Yeah. Um, what was the big difference between Terraplane and Thunder? Because in a sense, you're you're three fifths of the band. You're three fifths of Sun Thunder. Was it just right time, right place? Where two years later made a big difference? Did did Harry? And, and Snake come in and their songwriting just motivated you? Was it the name just wasn't right? Why do you think one didn't fly and the other one 
gave you arguably the best debut record of the late eighties, early nineties. I think um I think the experience of of making all the mistakes that we made with Terraplane counted a great deal towards the success that we achieved with Thunder. I think um you know when we signed our first record deal was Terraplane, we'd been in a band for nine years, we'd been rejected by every record company in London, some of them more than once. Um and when we did get a record deal, we kind of assumed that the record company knew what they were talking about. And, you know, if I was going to write a book today about the mistakes that you can make in the uh, in the music business, I think page one, front and center, would be do not believe your record company know what they're talking about because they don't always. And I think we learned that to our cost. And three years after signing to a major record label, Epic Records, which is Sony, you know, as it was then, or one of the Sony imprints then, um, you know, we'd been through the machine, as I called it, and we were spat out the other end and we were very disgruntled, very upset, felt like we'd been used and we felt like a, a kind of a, a commodity. We did everything the record company told us to do and it didn't work. So when Thunder came about, we decided we would do everything exactly our own way, in our own time, at our own speed. And if they didn't like it, they could go fuck themselves. Excuse my French. Um, and... That's that's the way we've been pretty much ever since. <laughs> it seems to work for us. It, it's working great. So, so let me just follow up on, on one more with with Terraplane because when I when I look at the band's uh, history of Thunder, and you tour and you do the Christmas shows, you know you you've covered songs by Tom Petty and you and Doobie Brothers and, and Paul McCartney and you you've done This World from Luke's solo stuff and you do Bose and Morley, but the one band that you and I'll, I'll say ignore over and over again is Terraplane. You never do I Survive. Is there an, an anger towards the band and you just don't want to deal with it? Have you just not thought about it? Do you think the songs aren't good enough and you just can't make them better? Is there a reason why you sort of stay completely away from, from that catalog and just don't want to revisit it? No, it's pretty simple. I mean, we decided when we ended Terraplane that that would be the end of it and we would never play those songs again. I think it, it just, I think you're, it, you might be right. I don't think we've ever thought about it as clearly as that, but it might be that those songs just remind us of a, of a time in our lives when we were, when we were desperately unhappy. I don't know. I just think when we started Thunder, we thought, well, that door's shut. Let's get on with a new one, you know, let's open a new one and, and get on. And I think, those covers that you talk about, we've always loved playing covers. You know, we warm up to covers. We, we jam covers in the studio before we record. While we're recording, you know, sometimes those covers end up making it onto records, like Give Me Some Loving on the first album. You know, that was a jam. We, we, we were drunk. It was late at night. And, you know, the first time we did it, everybody thought, wow, this is great. And then we couldn't remember how the, how the song finished, you know, and somebody had to do it again. In fact, a lot of the covers and the songs that we jammed on that first album actually ended up being released on a very expanded version of uh, of the album by um, Toshiba EMI in Japan. I think it was maybe 20 years in. I can't remember. But um, certainly when they sent us the uh, sent us the CD for us to approve, you know, we, some of these tunes, we couldn't even remember doing them. That's because we were so drunk when we made that album. It was uh, it was just the way it was. But um yeah, I just think I just think the Terraplane thing is and it's interesting because a lot of people are talking to me about Terraplane lately. I've been getting a lot of questions about Terraplane, but I, honestly, you know, for me that doors I couldn't even remember how the songs go to be honest. Well, well, try try the brushing up on I Survive because that one that one is good. It, it's and maybe it's a 
it's a good sort of theme song for the band that after 30 years, yes, you have survived and you, and you have yeah. made it. Um, since we're talking about covers, there is, of course, your time is going is going to come from the Led Zeppelin cover on the greatest hits. But uh, l- let me talk to you about this on on two two different planes. In a sense, you've you've done, like I said, the Bob Seger covers and the Tom Petty's. When you think of Thunder, everybody at the beginning described you as a hard rock or a heavy metal band. But a lot of the covers you do are far removed from that. Um, talk to me about some of the influences you've had. Are you more of in that sort of Doobie Brothers, Bob Seeker kind of mold, or did you sort of grow up on Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Kiss and No. No. No, no we were we were inspired very much by by a seventies rock, seventies pop. Um Beatles, Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin, um, you know, all the pop stuff around in the seventies, you know, where where we where we lived, you know, there were, there were, and the time that we grew up in, you know, there was sort of amazing albums being released, which it feels like, like every five minutes, you know, I can remember spending so much of my teenage years queuing up outside record stores, waiting for them to open so I could dive in and get the latest Deep Purple album or the latest Bad Company album, you know, or the latest Led Zeppelin album or the latest Who album, you know, and a lot of those albums turned out to be classics now. So, you know, if you're lucky enough to grow up at a time like that, you know, you've soaked up an enormous amount of very, very, very good material. Bands like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and bands like that, they became successful a long way after that period when, uh, you know, what, what I would call our formative years, you know, where we soaked up all our influences. A lot of the, a lot of the covers that we do are songs that we just like listening to. I'll be honest with you, you know, we don't think about it very deeply. We just kind of this will be good. Let's jam it. Try it out. If it feels good, we'll do it. You know, and yeah, certainly, certainly rock music is. I mean, we like making rock music, and we like making a good noise and shouting our head off. And you know, you'll find you won't find a band that like rocking out more than us. But we've never really seen ourselves as a, as a kind of a heavy metal band at all. Right. Too much, too much soul in our uh, in our locker for that. You know, we're also into Motown and Atlantic Stax, Soul, Stevie Wonder. You know, I mean, we listen to all that stuff as well on the bus. Yeah. And well, OK, so let me just finish on on the cover things. The one thing that you've never done is a proper covers album. Is that something that at some point you see yourself doing or is that no, no, no. We'll do a couple of songs at the Christmas show. Leave us alone. We're not doing. How do you sort of see that working out? To be honest with you, I think I think a covers album would be almost like a kind of such an easy win. It was not worth doing. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. you know, there's no challenge in doing a covers album for us. So we we play covers for fun. Um, we play covers at Christmas, which is our last our last show of the year. It's the last thing we do. You know, we play that. It's for us. It's just like a giant party. You know, and and other people get to come. You know, so by the time we finish that, you know, the next the next stop is the hotel bar where we you know we get royally drunk. You know, because it's the last thing we do. It's our, it's our like our Christmas party. You know, so once that's done, we don't do anything else. But I mean, the idea of a covers album, I just think is, it just makes no sense. You know, there's no real challenge in making a covers album for us. I mean, we've done loads. I think we did it. Probably some people might sneer. I don't know. It just, it doesn't really, um, doesn't really fill me uh, with warmth. You know, I think the idea of doing something that's challenging, that you can be proud of afterwards. You know that that's 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 the thing. That's what we're interested in doing. Just you know, making each each album a you know another line in the sand. You know, you know that's where we are now. We need to get better than that next time. 
Yeah, and that makes sense for me. And, and when you listen to the live albums that, that, that those covers are on, there's that sort of loosey-goosey feel of just people having a good time, which translates. Yeah. And I don't know if in the studio where it's more sort of antiseptic, if it would translate the same way where it's kind of fun, you know. Um, yeah, no, it's got a point. I think you got a point. Rip It Up uh, came out in 2017. It included Heather Finley on backing vocals. You did a song with her recently on her Wild White Horses album, which I have right in front of me, uh, Just a Woman. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that that collaboration, working with Heather, and then uh, where are we in terms of the next new Thunder album? Because three year, we're going on to three years now. Yeah, well, we've known Heather for a long time. Uh, since I think Ben hooked up with a band that she used to sing in called Mostly Autumn. They're a kind of a prog band, and I think Ben did a South American tour with them once playing keyboards. Long, 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 long time ago, and he became very good friends with Heather and and the rest of the guys in the band. And um, and then you know you hook up, you know we go we go to see them, they come to see us play, you know we're just friends. So when Heather wanted to make her first proper solo album, she spoke to Luke about producing it and co-writing it, and um, they got into the studio, they did it at Rockfield, you know where we make our albums and have made the last three albums and. Uh, and then Luke called me one day and said, I've got this song here. Would you like to do a duet with Heather? So I said, send me the song. If I like it, I'll do it. I'm pretty choosy about stuff I do outside of the band because a lot of the time the stuff I'm offered, I just don't like very much. Um, and I'd rather do a good job of something I like than do a bad job of something I don't like. So, And that's kind of how I feel. I'm very kind of cut and dried about it. So, um, But I like the song. So we did the tune. and um, And... She's pleased as punch. So I think that's that's the best test, isn't it? You know, if you if you do a song with somebody from their album and they're very pleased, then I think you can you can pat yourself on the back. No, I'm very happy with it and uh it's a good tune. Pretty easy for me. I just go in, shut my head off, leave, you know. It's kinda of, it's kinda of what I do. But um as far as the next album goes, I mean we are already uh, working on it. We've done some tunes already, recorded some songs, and we're going back into the studio towards the back end of the year to do some more. And if we feel we've got it nailed, then that'll be it. But if we feel we need some more songs, then we'll go back in early part of next year. We're going to release a new album, I would say, towards the back end of next year. That we've, We're not in any massive rush to do it. We want to make sure that it's as good as it can be so we give ourselves plenty of time to achieve it. That is a, a good plan. Uh, I, I like when they're... Uh... They're finished properly. Um, you, you did mention Luke having worked on this one. He's also done stuff with the Amorettes. You have not really sort of gotten into the whole production thing. Is that something that interests you at some point to be more of a producer and go do other artists? Or do you sort of just want to be the singer in a band? You know something? I don't honestly think. I mean, I've watched Luke at work. I've watched other producers at work. And I honestly do not think that I have the patience required to do the job. I think... You know, I spend a lot of my time um, managing other people's lives and making plans and making sure those plans work. Um, fortunately, it does make me a bit of a dictator sometimes. And um, I, I, I've had to kind of have a few conversations with people where they ask me for my opinion. And I tell them, you don't want my opinion because if I tell you what I think, you might cry. So I don't, I don't think that would make me a very good producer. Yeah, that that might be something. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Um, and I, we're we're getting to half an hour, so I'll, I'll start wrapping up. Uh, the band over the years has uh, released 
a lot of B-sides, a lot of, you know, uh, Japanese bonus tracks, a lot of extra stuff. You've got all these live recordings that were made for limited times. Do you see yourself at some point putting together some kind of collector's box set or some kind of deluxe edition of something and and start sort of repurposing those tracks? Or it was there, it was done. If you missed it, well, we're sorry, but we have to keep going forward. No, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't um, wouldn't put those um, some of those songs, those, some, some of those recordings out there um, again. I don't see any reason why we wouldn't do that. But with all these things, and we would need to feel that the collection, whatever the collection would be, would stack up as 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 music and as a thing, and it would be good value for money, and fans would feel like they were they were getting something that was good, you know, when they got hold of it. So, well, I think we're very fortunate. We're in a very good place with their current record label. BMG have been very, very supportive, very helpful. And we've got all kinds of discussions ongoing with them about what we do um, in the future. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out the idea of maybe reissues of some of the old albums with expanded uh, track lists and extra formats. No, I wouldn't rule that out at all. I think there's every chance that that kind of thing may happen. That's good. That is that's great news, actually. Uh, and I'll finish with these last two questions. One is shorter, one's a little longer, but uh, Michael Monroe of Hanoi Rocks has recently said that touring the U.S. is not worth it unless you're opening for a stadium-sized band. Do you sort of share that that view that coming over to North America just because of the expense, is just not worth it? Or do you see the band having some kind of plan down the road going, okay, we haven't been there since, whatever, the Canada Dry Tour of 91. Yeah. Let's go back. We would love to. I have to tell you, I think for us, the US and Canada have been elusive. It's been a thorn in our side and a source of some um, disappointment over the years that it never happened in the way that we hoped it would have happened. Um, we've, we've never given up that the opportunity might come along one day. Um, and if it does, we'll jump at it. You know, it's, I think it's very different when you're Michael Monroe and you've been doing it lots of times and you've had opportunities. You, I mean, you can afford to feel the way he does. But we haven't had the opportunities. And if we got them, we would take them. Trust me. We would love to give it a go over there. So it's not like, eh, we're comfortable in the UK, too bad, because, you know, okay. Uh, We've never been comfortable. We've never been comfortable. We're always pushing ourselves to to achieve something new. And uh, we're we're hitting half an hour, so I'll, I will end with this. Uh, the band over the years, including with Please Remain Seated, you've, you've retaken the songs, you've reorchestrated them, you've re-imagined uh, them. How important is that in the songwriting process that when you come up for songs for Wonder Days or Rip It Up or the next new one, do you sort of say, hey, there's a basic sort of melody that we have to have in order for it to sort of what sort of the, the what makes a good song, I guess, is the question. I think I think, as I said earlier on, I think if we can please ourselves, then we're reasonably confident that we can please the majority of our audience. And that's really what it comes down to. I think, you know, Luke. He toils away writing those tunes, and to my mind, he's a genius. The fact that he can he can do that, he goes to work, he sends me demos, and he blows my mind. You know, the fact that he can surprise me after all of these years for me is an absolute 
stunning revelation. Every time I think about it, 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 it blows my mind more. He's, um, he's a very clever guy, you know, and he's a, he's a, a real musicologist. He writes songs that he knows the band can do well. Um, and at the same time, he can write a song that will surprise us and excite us in, into, into playing it the best way we can and singing it the best way we can. So to my mind, you know, he's the key. And um, all I do, all I ever do is try to give him the space to, you know, to, to work his magic. And um, he's, uh, he's very, very good at it. And I think if he can surprise us and we can get all excited about it, then hopefully we can make a good record out of it. And that will do the same thing. But the audience, I mean, if he if he writes something that we think we've all heard before, we're we're very quick to tell him, you know. And those songs invariably don't make it past the drawing board. Yeah, well, he's doing uh, he's doing well. Could you look at a song like "Loser" on the album, and then the acoustic sort of B side, and then the "Please Remain Seated"? Three completely different versions, all, but they all work. And anyway, yeah. um well, that's, that's, I think for me, that's the that's the sign of a very good song. The fact that you can rework a song and it still still kind of almost like comes alive in a different way. I mean, those those please remain seated versions. Uh, that's probably about the most collaborative this band has ever got because so many of the ideas came from various members of the band. You know, hey, why don't we try it like this? Why don't we try this like a shuffle? You know, why don't we tr- just take this to pieces and turn it into a waltz and like a blues? You know, and and. Some of those ideas, we worked through them and they just made no sense. And others, you just straight away, you thought, hey, this is great. We've got something here. And that was part of the reason why that Please Remain Seated album for us was such an enjoyable process. It was very hard and very challenging, but the end result was great. And when we toured it earlier on this year, we were so surprised that it went as well as it did. We wondered whether our audience would be prepared to sit down for the best part of two hours because we've never asked them to do that before. But they did, and they loved it. And some of them told us afterwards that they thought it was the best show they'd ever seen by us, which is, you know, really gratifying, really, when you consider we spent the best part of 30 years making everybody jump up and down. And uh, on that, I will say uh, merci beaucoup. I could I could go on for another half hour, but I know your time is limited. So uh, merci, monsieur. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. And uh, keep doing what you're doing. It brings, it brings me and many uh, others great joy. Thanks very much, Mitch. Nice to talk to you. You too. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Okay. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.